This is a complete failure of the executive branch. The president, by saying that we have no proof that Navalny was poisoned by Russia, is sort of playing right into the Kremlin's hands. It is the week of September 7th, and welcome to episode 41 of Fault Lines, the national securities podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI, and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So you wouldn't know it from the news network's obsessive coverage of the American election and whatever Donald Trump may have said in Paris in 2018, but the rest of the world keeps spinning and there are a lot of developments for us to keep track of. So this week, we're going to talk about Russia and Sudan. First, Russia. Last month, Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny fell ill on a flight from Siberia to Moscow. He was medevaced to Germany, where doctors say he was poisoned by a toxic nerve agent known as Novichok. He was in a coma, and he's just now come out of the coma in the last few hours. This poison, Novichok, is a toxic agent, and it's been used to poison other antagonists of Vladimir Putin, including the former Russian spy, Sergei Skripal, who was poisoned along with his daughter in England in 2018. So a lot of signs pointing to Putin being the culprit here. Jody, what's going on that Putin would allegedly poison Navalny now? Putin's newly reelected, if you can call it that. He just proclaimed himself president again for another term a few months ago. There's not going to be an election in Russia for three and a half years. So why is this happening now? Alexei Navalny is an opposition activist, but an opposition activist particularly focused on rooting out corruption and graft in Russia. He has been a very large thorn in Putin's side for many years, exposing graft and corruption, and even maybe more importantly, encouraging Russians to want and expect more from their government. And Putin can't seem to control him, which I'm guessing is just maddening. So the timing of this comes after uh, a couple of things, right? You just know that Putin had been re-elected, if you will. It wasn't exactly an election, but on July 1st, Russians went to the polls in a nationwide referendum on a package deal of constitutional amendments. That means they got one vote on a whole variety of issues, including defining marriage, protecting pensions, and changing presidential term limits to allow Putin to stay in power until 2036. So Putin is feeling pretty good about this. He's just consolidated uh, his power, and yet Alexei Navalny is still out there uh, sticking it to him. So, you know, Navalny was out in Siberia, you know, responding to developments in the Russian Far East, which has seen a pretty significant number of protests, particularly for the Russian Far East. So you've got that in the East, and then on, on the Western side of Russia's West, you've got massive civilian protests in Belarus. So I think it's either one or two things. Like the speculation is that the Kremlin was feeling pressure from East and West with opposition activity. But I think the second prevailing theory is it was just opportunity, right? That he's been looking to take Navalny out for years and the opportunity presented itself. They presumed that this would go better than the last time they tried to use Novichok on this former intelligence agent in Britain, Skirpo, right? They thought that this would go better. They got him right before he got an airplane. I, I have to presume that they thought he wouldn't get access to medical attention very quickly and that they thought that they had done a better job this time around and they'd done a better job not just poisoning him but avoiding making him into a martyr like they did with Boris Nemtsov when they took him up by his squad. 
Jamil, what's your take on the poisoning of Navalny? There's these protests in Belarus going on, which is right next door to Russia. It's almost, to the extent another country could be part of Russia, it'd probably be Belarus. Vladimir Putin's got to be looking at what's going on in that country and thinking, this could be happening to me, but for the grace of God go I. What's your take on the timing of this poisoning? Well, look, I mean, Vladimir Putin obviously is at uh, all-time lows in popularity in Russia, which, you know, isn't very low relative to the rest of the world. We've seen him oftentimes uh, lash out uh, when he's when he feels under pressure domestically. Um, clearly, the events happening in Belarus and elsewhere in the region are giving him pause. He's under fire for his handling of the COVID situation in Russia itself. Obviously, Russia's a longstanding economic challenges, particularly with oil at record lows or, or having been in record lows recently, is obviously concerning to Putin also. And all of this is coming to put pressure on him. And the last time he was under this kind of pressure and was at this level of sort of support in the Russian public, he struck out against Crimea and went abroad and seized that territory unlawfully and illegally. And now we see him uh, going around poisoning people. Jody's right to point out uh, this has been a long-standing series of events uh, with Russians poisoning, uh, and in particular Putin poisoning his enemies. But the timing of this one does seem interesting. I'm not sure it's actually the right play for Putin, whether it's an effort to sort of push Navalny out of the way and make him irrelevant. I actually think it's going to run counter to it because it plays right into the view of him as an overly aggressive person who's lashing out. And so unlike Crimea, which created a real groundswell of, of Russian nationalism and, and sort of belief in the motherland, this does not seem like it's going to have the same effect. And I think Putin may have overplayed his hand on this one. Dana, let's talk about the international reaction to the poisoning of Navalny. He's recuperating in Germany, and it looks like things are going well on the medical front for him. But the fact that he's in Germany is of some significance. Germany, of course, of all the countries in Europe, seems to have the most economic and energy links to Russia. There is, of course, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would go from Russia to Germany to supply liquid natural gas. Talk about how the international community, particularly our European friends, are reacting to what's happening. And in particular, what does this mean for German-Russian relations? So a few things. First, I want to go back to what Jody and Jamil were talking about, which is timing. Why now? So first of all, I think in the broader geostrategic context, one thing to think about is why now is because the United States is very inwardly focused on its own domestic election and its recovery or attempted recovery from COVID and its own economic downturn, as are most countries in the world. So when it comes to Europe, when it comes to Belarus, when it comes to Navalny, when it comes to Russian actions in Syria, when it comes to Russian actions in Crimea, when it comes to Russian interference in the current election here in this country, Putin perceives, one, that President Trump is not going to stand up to him. And two, he's looking around and given the ongoing economic strains in Russia, the fact that many Russian officials are already under sanctions in this country and from the Europeans for actions, destabilizing actions all over the world, etc., why not take out your opposition? Because what kind of reaction is Russia going to be held up for? And what is the accountability structure? And he's basically calling Germany's bluff. There's been pressure on both sides of the aisle in Congress for a long time for Germany to stand up to Russia, especially as it seeks to cement energy ties to Russia. And the view, of course, is that this will give Russia more leverage over Germany and Europe in terms of its energy dependence on Russia, which would presumably in the eyes of Russia make European leaders less willing to 
stand up when Russia takes destabilizing actions or attempts to use chemical agents to take out opposition leaders, etc. And now Angela Merkel is facing some tough political domestic pressures of her own where different political parties are calling on her to cut off construction of Nord Stream, to turn away from uh, solidifying these pipelines, which would make Germany more energy dependent on Russia. And I think it's extremely significant that Navalny is recovering in Germany because German doctors and German medical facilities are actually seen as credible. And you have a German medical team saying without a doubt that this was Novichok. And you have other countries on record saying that Novichok is created and has been used by the Russian government to take out other dissidents or former spies, etc. And so when the German medical establishment says Navalny was targeted by a chemical agent known to be used by the Russian government, that speaks with credibility that if the Russians said, oh, no, it wasn't us, I don't think it would have the same level of credibility. And in terms of the reaction, I think it remains to be seen. So the question is, how many more individual sanctions or how much more naming and shaming can NATO and the European Union and the United States do that's going to cause a behavioral change in Russia. So I think the story, you know, in terms of Jamil saying Putin has overreached this time, I think the story is is yet to be told. I think there's one factor that we haven't considered here, right? So this was a pretty risky move, particularly considering they didn't get it right, unless it has the intended effect of keeping Alexei Navalny out of the country, right? So one of the things that the Russians did fairly successfully to another opposition activist, Vladimir Karamuza, was they poisoned him. In fact, they poisoned him twice, which has forced him basically into exile from Russia. So like, well, the best case scenario for Putin would have been that they were successful. The second best case scenario is they actually potentially get Alexei Navalny out of Russia. And that would be a benefit to Vladimir Putin. Jamil, let's talk about Donald Trump and the American reaction. Trump has gone out of his way to not blame Putin for the poisoning of Navalny. He's given him a huge opening here. Is there any good that could come of the president giving that kind of gift to Vladimir Putin? Or is this just horrendous from top to bottom? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a complete failure of the executive branch. The president, by saying that we have no proof that Navalny was poisoned by Russia, is sort of playing right into the Kremlin's hands and right into Putin's hands. I think it's a mistake. Certainly, we may not have the kind of proof that you would bring to a federal court to prosecute somebody. But again, remember, in international affairs, that's never been the rule. Uh, You don't need proof beyond a reasonable doubt that a jury of Vladimir Putin's peers, as if you could even find such a group in the United States, would use to convict him of this crime. What you need is the kind of proof that uh, would cause uh, states in the international community to act. And here we have plenty of evidence that Navalny was poisoned by Russia, that the agent used was one that is created by the Russians for their use, an agent that they've used recently Uh, with respect to Sergei Skripal, as everyone has pointed out. And the idea somehow that the president of the United States would sort of off the cuff and sort of in a throwaway moment say that we have no proof is exactly the wrong move for the U.S. government. Dana, Jody, Congress has been on recess for the last few weeks. They're coming back right about now this week and next week to get back to work before the election, a few more weeks of legislative activity. How do you expect the Hill to react to the Russian poisoning of Alexei Navalny? Either one of you. 
the reaction, initial reaction from Congress was pretty swift and tough, which was to be expected, right? This isn't their first round with Russia trying to poison people it doesn't like. And in fact, this morning, you saw a bipartisan action by the chair and ranking members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. They sent a letter to Donald Trump under the Chemical and Biological Weapons Control and Warfare Elimination Act, triggering a 60-day evaluation period for the White House. This is a period of time where they need to make a determination on whether or not chemical weapons were used. And if they determine that they were, a sanctions process is laid out under the act. This is basically the same thing that happened in 2018 with the scripal poisoning. So I think there was only one possible outcome for the White House here, which is that the Russians, in fact, poisoned Alexei Navalny. And I think Trump's own NSC basically has aligned itself with that position. You know, they basically tweeted out something saying, yeah, it looks like that's the case. So I think they reached that conclusion. And I'll be frank, look, if the White House doesn't do it, Congress will. Dana, just give us your amateur opinion here. How would a President Joe Biden handle this differently than our current president is handling it? I think this one is an easy place to build bipartisan consensus. So there's a long history of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle calling for tougher, unified action to push back on Russia. And if Congress were to pass legislation mandating sanctions under global Magnitsky or a new law to punish officials for poisoning Navalny, you'd have a willing partner in a Joe Biden administration to work with Congress. And I think the key difference, again, and and we sort of go over this every single podcast and how would a Biden administration be different, is that right now the United States is very isolated internationally and diplomatically, which makes it very challenging to form coalitions to push back against Russian aggression, Russian use of chemical weapons. And then this is a perfect example of where transatlantic unity and coordination would be very helpful in sending a certain signal to Russia that this is unacceptable, needs to stop, and will be met with serious action to counter it. And unfortunately, I think you're probably going to see a lot of leaders in European capitals interested in taking some sort of action, but not necessarily coordinating it with the Trump administration, which weakens the larger response. So I really want to get a reaction, Jody and Jamil, from you guys on something. Germany's just passed legislation that is very similar to the American Global Magnitsky Act. The Global Magnitsky Act, which the two of you basically wrote in conjunction, in happy collaboration, as I recall, that you wrote calls for the American government to have the ability, based on human rights or corruption concerns, to sanction individuals who are in the government of other countries and behaving badly, whether it's on the human rights front or because of uh, spectacular acts of corruption. Don't you think in a way that, you know, while we have a president who's acting in a certain way that doesn't enamor other countries of the United States, there's been a lot of leadership decisions taken by the legislative branch, by Congress, that have found common cause with similarly minded folks in other countries, particularly our friends and allies in Europe. What do you think of that? I'd love to hear from either one of you on that. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think that um, obviously the U.S. putting in measures like this help move the ball, but more needs to be done. At the end of the day, uh, if we're going to respond to this kind of behavior from countries like Russia, uh, the U.S. has to do more, but it can't just be the U.S. alone. Uh, We have to get our allies to come along with us. Uh, Part of that is cajoling them. And this administration has a challenge of cajoling uh, allies. It tends to try to uh, beat them into submission. Uh, On the other hand, the prior administration had the failure of being too easy handed and sort of giving the farm away and not really putting pressure on our allies or the like. And so I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. But I think we need 
concerted combined action from the international community. It's not sufficient to have the U.S. do it, uh, but we do have to act first. And, you know, when the president is at the podium and saying, you know, well, we're not sure, you know, or, you know, like he did with, this, with the Russian cyber activities, well, we're not sure it was the Russians. Um, here we have no proof that it was the Russians that poisoned Navalny. Uh, that doesn't help the effort. It doesn't get our allies on board and it prevents us from actually taking action ourselves. And that is the challenge. Okay, let's turn to our second topic, Sudan. Been a lot of action there lately. For years, Sudan has been a rogue nation or a near rogue nation, a state sponsor of terrorism, a junior member, if you will, of the axis of evil. It's been involved in civil war in Darfur. There's been conflict between the north of Sudan and what is now South Sudan. Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda got their start in Sudan back in the 1990s. In short, Sudan has been bad news for three decades. Now it looks like things are changing in Khartoum. There's talk of de listing Sudan from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just went there a few days ago, talked about the possibility of Khartoum recognizing the state of Israel, which would really be something. Sudan may soon be paying damages to the families of American sailors who were killed in the bombing of the USS Cole in the year 2000 when Al-Qaeda was operating out of Sudan. So Dana, tell us what's changed in Sudan over the last year or two. How did Sudan, of all places, become a source of good news in the world? So I'm just going to add, Les, that in addition to victims of terror from the USS Cole, it also appears that Sudan is willing to compensate victims from the 1998 embassy bombings in Africa. So what happened last year, nine years after the Arab Spring, which most of our listeners will remember, there were new civilian-led protests, this time in Sudan and also in Algeria. And those protests continued every single day for months until the military in Sudan stepped in, removed Omar Bashir, who's been wanted by the International Criminal Court uh, for a long time for actions in Darfur, um, his association with the atrocities committed in Darfur. The military council steps in as a way to relieve pressure from the Sudanese street. And in the course of removing Bashir, uses violence to suppress the protests. And the protesters in Sudan, having learned the lessons of the first wave of the Arab Spring, that that military leaders are not necessarily going to deliver the inclusive governance or democracy or civil rights, fundamental freedoms that the street may desire, continue to protest despite the very real threat of violence being used against them until the military finally relented and allowed civilians to be partners with them in a transitional government. And is that transitional government today that has appeared to turn a page on the variety of foreign policy issues that the United States and other countries have with Sudan. So that is about willing to pay compensation for victims of terror in which Sudan was involved. It is apparently um, being willing to turn over Omar Bashir to the ICC. It is willing to make agreement toward peace to end the civil war with tribes in Darfur. It allowed a delegation from Human Rights Watch to visit the Sudan, to visit Khartoum and have conversations about the various kinds of progress and milestones and steps that need to be taken to have a truly credible civilian-led government. And it's in talks with the United States about policies and parties of the United States, for example, normalizing relations with Israel, which would be a game changer. So that's where we are right now. The transitional government in Khartoum obviously is interested in having the state sponsor of terrorism designation lifted. This would allow capital and economic recovery of Sudan, who is suffering just like most countries all over the world from the twin crisis 
crises of collapse and oil economic collapse and COVID-19. And normalizing relations uh, with Israel would obviously open the door to security cooperation with the United States, potential security cooperation with Israel, and also because of Sudan's willingness to break off associations with Iran, the door is also open to increase cooperation and integration in the Arab world. So, Jody, this all seems like great news. Of course, Sudan was misbehaving on the international front for a very long time. Interestingly, during that period, it appears, based on stuff we've seen in public sources, that there were always pretty good links between our intelligence community and the national security community in Khartoum. In other words, Sudan, even while the government was a bad actor, was kind of playing all sides. They were talking to everybody. They're in the middle of a lot of different disputes, north to south, east to west, inside their own country. So how much should we think of what's happening in Sudan as a real sea change And how much faith should we put in the good things that are happening there now? What's your take? Well, I think that all countries play the geopolitics game, every single one of them. And I'm really incredibly positive about the future of Sudan, but will acknowledge that transitions are risky because it's hard to run a government and people's expectations run very high. Do I think it's different? I do. I think this was an unusual transition. It was unexpected transition. And it was led by civilians from the street and, as Dana noted, supported by the military. So I think this is an opportunity for real change in Sudan and that we have people, well-intentioned people in key positions who didn't join these protests thinking that they were going to be the next rulers of Sudan. Uh, a lot of what Dana had to say, you know, back this up. There's a, there's a peace agreement with other regions, including Darfur. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen major changes internally uh, within Sudan. Sudan eliminated its death sentence for apostasy. It's allowing Muslims to consume alcohol. I don't know how, you know, how relevant that is, but it's different, right? Uh, it prohibited female genital mutilation. It's banned public flogging and, you know, limited the requirement that women receive a permit from a male family member before traveling. A lot of that comes out of the Justice Ministry, and the Justice Minister himself is a former civil society and human rights activist. I just think it's a different group of people running this government than we've had in place before, and I think that makes an enormous difference in sustaining a positive transition and a transition focused on what people in Sudan want. They want rights and they want, uh, let's be honest, they want jobs and they want a solid economy. And I think the government of Sudan is taking these steps internally, but they are also playing with the international community. They are also working with the international community to get off the state sponsor terrorism list and to get back in the good graces of the international community so they can get the international support they need to rebuild their economy. Jamil, what is Sudan changing its stripes here mean for the global war on terror? You know, Sudan was at the very beginning, there was housing Osama bin Laden. Attacks against our country were launched effectively from Sudanese soil. They were bad guys at the get-go. Now they're flipping over to be good guys. Is this a big change for the global war on terror? We may be on the backside of this thing and more good news will follow from this. Well, I'm not sure we're on the backside of the global war on terror. I mean, I think this is a enduring fight. And frankly, we have lightened up on this fight in recent years. Uh, and I think to our failure, um, I think that we have allowed more of our enemies to gather and gain territory and gain uh, opportunity and space to operate. There are more places in the world today where there is discord and a lack of stable governance, including in Syria, Yemen, other places, which are allowing uh, for the spread of uh, terrorist uh, ideology. So while Sudan is a good example of something that's come out of this and come to the other side, and I think it is is a sort of a success story in some sense, uh, it's still to be seen whether it lasts, but 
at least for now, is certainly a success story. You know, I think that with respect to Sudan itself, certainly we're in a better place. Uh, I do worry, though, that when you have situations where there is new leadership and we still remain in relative economic turmoil, I think it says two things. One, it should be assigned to other nation states in the region and frankly around the globe that the current economic turmoil brought on by COVID and the like, as Dana's pointed out, could lead to significant a kind of uprising in the streets uh, that could cause displacement even of a regime like Bashir's, which is in place for 30 years, albeit, you know, with its ups and downs. The other thing I think we should also uh, take away from this is that just as easily as a, as a successful government can be swept into power, um, and this happened, remember, over, only over the course of a couple of years or a year and a half, and really just the latter part of 2019, it can go just as easily. If economic challenges continue, if this technocratic government led by a former UN diplomat can't succeed and doesn't succeed and doesn't deliver real results, as Jody has uh, said, uh, to the Sudanese people, they can be out just as easily as they came in. And so I think two important messages to take from Sudan. One, this can be a successful way uh, to the other side of the dynamic, uh, but you have to make sure you sustain it and you provide economic opportunity uh, and real freedom. Um, and then second, that for other nation states that are looking at this, that the current economic situation we are in could present similar changes for them also, and they should be uh, warned as a result. Les, it's worth mentioning in this conversation that this idea of Sudan paying international reparations, including the United States, is actually really controversial in Sudan, right? So there are a lot of citizens of Sudan who feel like they were also victims of the Bashir regime and that there should be a transitional justice process within Sudan and don't necessarily feel like they should have to pay for the right of the former leadership of Sudan. I can be sympathetic to that idea, although I think politically it's not realistic, right? Like states end up having to pay for the crimes of their former leaders, even if it's not, you know, entirely fair to the population. And that's essentially the price of getting back in the good graces of the international community. But it is one of the factors, as Jamil just mentioned, this is a risky transition, as all transitions are. And there was a building feeling in Sudan that people are frustrated that reforms and changes aren't happening quickly enough, and that while half the population of Sudan is living in poverty, the state is focused on making payouts to, um, to not to people in Sudan, but to people in the international community. I think that's a great point, Jody, and it is on the United States, both Congress and the White House, whoever happens to win in November, is going to have to lead the international community to embrace Sudan, the Western-oriented rule of law part of the international community, to embrace Khartoum, help them with their macroeconomic challenges. As Jamil points out, if there's not economic progress, we're going to lose them back to the other side or to the Chinese. And the way things have been going, frankly, particularly in the Republican Party, where the president has no regard for the toolbox of foreign policy for foreign assistance and other things, multilateral lending institutions, other UN agency doesn't bode well. Frankly, I'm a little concerned about Democrats, too. They're a little inwardly focused these days. But we need to embrace what's happening in Khartoum and step up with a real package that's going to aid them and support reformers and keep the reform community strengthened in that country. You know, we did this somewhat in Ukraine under the Obama administration. We were there. Congress was there with real financial resources. And we brought a lot of stuff to bear to keep Ukraine pointed towards the West. And that's largely worked. You could quibble about whether we should have done more military aid. I think we should have. But in Sudan, we can't lose that opportunity. No one's talking about it yet, that we need to step in with a big aid package led by the IMF, World Bank, European donors ourselves. We're way too focused on what Sudan's going to pay to us. We need to sustain them. We need to keep them on, on our side of this, this division. Exactly what you said, Les, right? Like they're doing the right thing. And then we have to follow on and pull all of the right levels in, in the U.S. government as well as in the international community to sustain and invest in that transition or it, or it won't last. 
totally agree. All right, let's go to the uh, final part of uh, this episode and talk about issues we're following that are not necessarily on the front pages. Jamil, why don't you go first? Well, over the weekend, we heard that the Chinese uh, were planning on their own response uh, to the American Clean Networks Initiative. This is an effort championed by uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to ensure that the U.S. uh, systems and networks are protected, that user privacy is protected, uh, that our systems are protected from uh, surveillance by uh, the world's largest, uh, frankly, thief of intellectual property, the Chinese government. And so it was kind of ironic that the Chinese uh, decided that they were going to uh, put out a uh, policy uh, to defend uh, global networks against the very kind of predation uh, that they've been engaging against the United States for the better part of uh, better part of a decade. And so uh, we'll see what happens with this. I dare say uh, most people see it for what it is, which is an attempt by the Chinese uh, to assert uh, rights actually for themselves, uh, particularly against the domestic audience. Uh, that they would support for other nations. And really, this goes back to the larger debate between the United States and China on one side, our Western allies and Russia on the other, where the U.S. and our Western allies are saying, look, we need to protect the global free internet. Uh, And the Chinese and Russians are saying, look, we need to protect our ability to uh, deal with our populations at home. They're just two fundamentally different views of the world. Uh, They're not consonant. And it's why we're unlikely to see uh, an agreement at the international level on cyber issues. Uh, and it's also why uh, the U.S. has ha- shown itself to have to engage in these clean networks and activities. And the Chinese are just playing their side of it. And I think we'll, we'll not do it successfully. Dana, what are you following? I am following the news out of Saudi Arabia that eight people have been sentenced to jail terms between, I believe, seven years and 30 years for involvement in the killing of Washington Post journalist and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi. So this incident in 2017 caused international outrage, and particularly in Congress, where members from both sides of the aisle worked together to demand sanctions under global Magnitsky, and then a public accounting by the Trump administration as to whether or not the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, directly ordered or had knowledge of the operation that led to Khashoggi's death in Turkey. And so the question today is whether or not the sentencing of these eight individuals closes the chapter on this very dark period in terms of Saudi presence on the world stage and U.S.-Saudi relations, which have very much been dragged down in Washington by the unresolved issue of Jamal Khashoggi's death and truth and accountability about what exactly happened, who specifically ordered it, and meaningful justice. So now we need to, as members of Congress, come back from their summer recess, see how they react, whether they continue to insist on further accountability and reporting from the administration, whether or not the administration is going to be willing to take those steps or say the Saudi government um, delivered justice according to its standards inside its country and the case is settled from our perspective. So whether or not this continues to amplify tensions and congressional scrutiny of the U.S.-Saudi relationship or whether it dampens it and closes the chapter on this era. Jody, what are you following? So I'm following a tweet just this morning or news from the editor-in-chief of China's Global Times. This is a Chinese state media entity. And he tweeted this morning that China is going to sanction senior U.S. officials that visit Taiwan or American companies that have ties with Taiwan. And he says, quote, they will never be allowed to enter Chinese mainland and U.S. companies that have ties will also lose Chinese mainland market, right? So this is presumably a response to a whole 
bunch of things, but most recently the visit of the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, to Taiwan. He is apparently the highest ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan since 1979. And I will add, if you don't count members of Congress, of whom many, many have visited Taiwan over the years, I think that just kind of goes to show that uh, people don't give Congress the respect that it always deserves. Jody, quick question. Is the Secretary of Health and Human Services mentioned in the Constitution? I don't think so. I don't think he's in line with the presidency, but apparently... We didn't know that the Secretary of Health and Human Services could actually tick off the Chinese so much that they're they're going to go ahead and, and issue sanctions. So, like, it's really interesting to watch the Twitter commentary on this. Like, some of it's like, yeah, bring it on. Some of it's like, great, send those jobs to India, right? Of course, none of that accounts for the billion-person Chinese market for American goods. And I'm going to be super curious to watch how a company say, like, mm, maybe Disney uh, which is already under attack with filming part of its live-action Mulan film in Xinjiang, uh, manages this most recent kind of threat from China, right? Our, our business is going to have to choose whether or not to do business in uh, Taiwan or China, which on a marketplace, uh, just on the marketplace economics would seem like an easy, easy decision, but politically, uh, obviously not, uh, not so simple. Okay, so the thing I'm following is another uh, issue in China. Notably, three of the four of us are following uh, issues in China. China gets plenty of attention for what's going on with Taiwan, for what's going on in Xinjiang, where there may be a genocide happening, for its oppression of the people of Tibet. Now it's adding Inner Mongolia to the list of places where it's oppressing its own people. It's forcing the natives there who are of Mongolian descent to use Mandarin as their language in school. 23 people were arrested uh, in the last few days for protesting this. Yet another example of the totalitarian nature of the the Beijing regime. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Michelle Story for research assistance, and Jesse Steinhauer for being our guest producer and director of this week. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.